Welcome to another episode of Through My Eyes. I'm Ralph Renzulli, your host for our continuing series of interviews with Little Falls Vietnam veterans. I'm very happy to have with me today Lou Ciccone. Lou served with the Army in Vietnam and he was there from October of 1968 to August of 1969. He served in the 84th Artillery Regiment as a cannon crew member. Lou, Can thanks for doing this. Appreciate you coming and thank you for your service. Thank you. You're welcome. So Lou, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick this off by asking you this question. It's 50 years since you left Vietnam. Right. Do you still think about it? Oh yeah. Just, uh, it's part of my life, I guess, like it or not, you know. So you're, you're one, of the, one of the vets who has no problem talking about it. You didn't right. have any issues putting right. it behind it's, you. And you I deal went, with it just fine. This friend of mine, George, he, from uh, Fairfield, we went to schools and stuff and talked to him a few years ago, you know. And then we went out west. We got our 100%, both of us. We went out, and then I had him stop at all, uh, Hickok, I like Hickok. Now, now I'm wasting your time now, but we stopped at everything we could find about Hickok, the guy, you know, the famous gunfighter. Okay, yeah. so it was a it was a long journey from the time you left high school to Vietnam. Oh, so let yeah. me let me go back. Let me take you back a little bit. You graduated in 1965, right? But you didn't you didn't enlist until well, a, until I a couple, did. You yeah in you didn't enlist until a couple of well, years. I went later. to college for a while. My parents wanted okay. me to go. I didn't even want to go that much. But they were trying. I didn't realize they were trying to keep me out of going in the army. You know, but then I. I had trouble with one semester, and then they put you on a half a year. You know, you can't go in and you got to skip a semester. Then the draft board's on your butt. You know, so I signed up to avoid the draft. It was a joke, like you know. So, but so I shouldn't have signed up. Why the army? Why did you pick the army? I wanted to go in the Marines with my cousin. Okay. But my father talked me out of it. I'd probably been, well, I could have got killed with them just as easy, you know. Mm -hmm. But that would have, you know, a buddy system, once you get out of training, you, they just send you different places anyway. Tell but me a little bit about your basic training. I believe you said it was at Fort Dix. Fort Dix, Any yeah. particular memories of, of basic? Yeah, when you first get there, those sergeants are, the drill sergeants are screaming, yelling, hollering, and you to get in them barracks, hurry up, you know. And uh, there was a guy in front of me, he says, just run him over, and I did it. <laughs> I mean, I just went through him, kind of, you know. But my father was pretty tough on me. He was a medic in World War II, and he was always on my case, you know. So I thought the basic was a picnic compared to the old man, kind of, you know. But he was, he was toughening me up all of my life, you know. And I always like to watch westerns and war pictures and all that stuff. So you got through basic. Yeah. In your opinion, you got through it pretty easily. Is that what you're saying? I got the highest score on the physical training, the highest score on the men, the GT there, the testing, and I uh, tied the Fort Dix low crawl record of 17 seconds flat under 40 yards of barbed wire. 
That's what they call low crawl. Yeah. Under barbed under, wire. We had barbed wire. Now they use ropes, you know. Okay. But I was scooting, to, and the guys, in 1917, what, about a million guys went through there. That record was set, and I tied it, he said. They're watching you. And, um, it was, you know, I was good with those pugil sticks there. I don't know what they call it there. And I was expert with the grenade rifle and pistol. They had me training a guy that was going to be an officer how to throw further, you know. I used to throw the shot put in like that. And I got him a little further out there. But that was a show time. All the sergeants challenged me. You get a, a stake, a metal stake in about eight or nine rings around it. And I could just hit that stake every time. So the sergeants challenged me, but they put a helmet on there and made it even easier. And I beat all of them guys too, you know. Then they had me training people, <laughs> yeah. oh, which was all right, you yeah. know. So while, while you're going through this training and you're doing really well, were you thinking about Vietnam at that time? Did you think there was a good chance you well, would end I figured, up there? I didn't think a whole lot about it. Okay. I, yeah, I was thinking about it, but I figured I might as well do my best because some guys were slouching right. to, to try to, like on the rifle range, they'd miss the shots and they thought they were going to get out of going into infantry. They just kept bringing them up there till they started shooting straight. And... Uh, that was with the M14, that's a 308. And then I was in Georgia the next year, Signal Corps, that's what I signed up for. So, and uh, when we went to NAM, when they got the NAM orders, I was supposed to see the Colonel about OCS, because I had all the right stuff for it, you know. But they, he was golfing, right? And then they, I saw him Monday, they cut my orders Friday, and he wasn't there to get me through the paperwork. He said, oh, sorry, you know, that could have been my life right there, you know. So, most generally, there's a, a, another step for training, which is called AIT, Advanced Individual Training. Yeah, that I went to, that Signal Corps with avionics, which I didn't know anything about. But the, when I first went, when in, I was going for a cryptography. They say, oh, that's all full up. Okay. You can have this, but I didn't really want this because I'm not good at wiring and checking stuff, you know. So it was a 14-week course, and about the ninth week, the next week up, a guy got electrocuted on one of these things. And I said, this ain't for me. You know, I ask them questions. They go, check your manual. But, you know, if you don't, start out in electronics you ain't you're gonna have a hard time so i i asked them if i could get out of there and they said what do you want cook or clerk so i had took uh typing from miss kernan remember her sure she made you learn it right so i didn't want to slop around in the mess hall that was a that wasn't a great job the mess hall you had you put in a lot of hours and nobody's real happy back there. You know, I didn't want to do that. So I got to be the, uh, like, what do you call Just, you know, like Hitler was a runner. Well, they were doing me as an in-headquarters company. I'd go 
bring somebody a message or do this and that, answer the phone. So you were trained to do clerking and you well, said that I you... took that for a job. But once you get to NAM, you get, they're all the, them jobs, those jobs are full up. So they throw you all over the place, you know. So tell me about the transition from that to being in the artillery. As an, well, as a can, when I got to the can NAM, of they sent, they had, first thing was a whole week or two. The, the mortar, they mortared, all us vehicles had flat tires and the big deuce and ass had split rims. And they had us, we didn't have lights, so dawn to dark, 12 hours or more every day, sweating 100 and something degrees, breaking tire. And you know, on the big ones, you gotta hit them right or it'll flip right up at you. The, the, anyways. Let me, excuse me, let me just back you up just a little bit. So you, de you deployed to Vietnam in October of 68. Right. Just tell, tell me, I was, was a trip over and your arrival. And well, we flew, we were over there flying, you know, and then we, you know, they had the civilian stuff, nice air condition and everything. And then when you landed and they opened the door, it was about a hundred something, you know, and I'm coming down the stairs there and this guy goes, hey, did you saved my seat for me? I said, oh, I know I was into, into something bad here, you know because everybody couldn't wait to get out of there, really. Except for the ones, lifers, the ones that are, that's what they do, you know. Where did, you, where did the plane touch down, actually? I think it was, um, not, did Long Bin have an, it was either Long Bin or, I think it was Long Bin. Okay. That's a big, we, it was LBJ, Long Bill, Long been jail when they had a big jail there, you know. I had to go in there and do some work one time. All right, so you touch down, and obviously the, the climate and the environment strikes oh, you. Oh, it hits you. It hits you. So what, just tell me about the next few days after that. What did you do? Let's see. Well, first they had me on a detail, hanging around. This Long been is huge, you know, it's a mile across. And I was just doing something in a... I think it was an enlisted man's thing. They're just cleaning up stuff, you know. And then, in two days, they had you all fall out. You're going here, you're going there. I heard sergeants and guys screaming when they got orders for certain places, like my place or way up north. And, uh, I, you know, 9th Infantry Division, Mekong Delta. So you end up at... Dong Tam. Dong Tam. Dong Tam. First, that, that was, was your... at Bearcat. That's okay. The old. That was where the the Thailanders were in there. Okay. And they were real friendly with us. They were they were good fighters. And that had been the Ninth Infantry Base Camp. Then they moved it, built a whole new one. Right on the river, they plowed up everything. And no V. No VC could get under there because you only had this much sand under you. So Dong Tam is, it's I a, believe, the it's ninth division base of, camp. It's just a little yeah. southwest of Saigon. Maybe 20, 30, no, no, 30 no, miles south. Right, right in the heart of Mekong the Rice Bowl, which right. was where all the VC were. You know. There was more people there per square or whatever than anywhere. Tell me a little bit about the terrain in the... In the Pretty flat. What? 
but rice paddies, okay. jungles, and stuff like that. Do you ever have an issue with uh, the bugs and the leeches? And yeah, yeah. They, when you got there, they said, "Don't wear any underwear because you'll get this." What's that? Jungle rot. I only had a little piece of it down there, but it, it's still a scar. But if you had underwear, it would re they'd really get you somehow. I don't know. But we didn't wear any. <laughs> Sorry about that. But. So you're in the 1st Battalion, 84. 84. Well, first I was with the 9th Admin. They stuck me okay. doing odd jobs, you know. Okay. Then I got in the, the LERPs, Long Range Patrol guys. They were getting done. They were um, phasing them out. And um, they were working at this... Uh, Crafts place, so they stuck me in there with them guys. But at night they would go out and do stuff, perimeter patrols, ambush. But the f the best one was this crow's nest. In the center of the place was a, you know how you see in a baseball, you got those big. They must have sent it from the states, big trees, big poles. Uh, so there was a little thing on top. It was way up, a hundred something feet. And it was a breeze up there when we went up there. You take the ladder back up, but you're supposed to watch for mortar watch. You're looking around. <clears throat> and they had, these LERPs had the best stuff. They had M16, that's a 223, with a scope and a silencer. You could shoot and nobody could hear you unless they were right in front of it, you know. For the benefit of our viewers, I just want, I want to point out oh, I, that for the benefit of our viewers, yeah. I just want to say that a LERP is long range, long range reconnaissance, reconnaissance patrol. So that's but what they were just so doing around. that for a little they, while. They didn't go far out because right. they were getting done. Okay. So they still went out at night and I said, Can I come? And they said, Sure, it's your your butt, you know. So I so was you actually went on one of the, you went on these missions with some of them. Yeah, like not we didn't always sometimes we'd just do some other stuff get in a bunker and watch stuff or okay. we could see our own people with that scope a night scope you know now let's talk about artillery because you all were, right, you all right, were then. a 13b uh, 13b bravo cannoneer cannoneer what is that let's explain to me the, what that is all right you, you start out like a powder monkey would in the civil war and the boats you're running powder out to the gun you got a bunker you, you get the right charge and they call you, you run, because you don't want powder around guns going off till they fire. So you start out with that, running the powder. And uh, the best job I liked, which most guys didn't care either, but number one man was the gunner, he's coordinates. Number two man closes the breach and pulls the lanyard. So I like doing that for some reason, you know. But we had a mech, it was like on a tank. I went there because every, I wanted to go get out of there. I wanted to be mobile, you know. But I saw these guys going by in tanks. You don't have to slop around in the jungle or the rice paddies. I figured there's the place I'd like, you know. But we got shot at just as much or more. And you never get any sleep because we had a West Point captain. And most artillery units would kind of sit around in the daytime if they weren't firing. And he had us polishing stuff up, 
he was gung-ho, you know. How big were these guns? The biggest one in them, eight-incher, 244 millimeters. It's, all right, you got the, you got the 105s, that's the small one. Then you got the 155s. And then the 175s were the ones with the long barrels. We had that read right on that, but it was a shorter barrel. And eight inch diameter, that's a, And nobody ever wore earplugs. I just volunteered in there, you know. I was getting into it, you know. How far could uh, this gun, how far could it lob a shell? Well, let's see. It could shoot up to maybe 20 miles, but 10 miles it could, what, what you do is you see the aerial observer call in, there's some gooks, well, the Vietnamese VC, and the first round would be a marking round. It would be phosphorus, so where you could see where it hit. And the second round, we could put it in a Coke can at 10 miles, or a, or a foxhole we were getting. Foxhole hits at 10. That's how, they had a FDC in, at the camp there, Fire Direction Center that was computerized. Computerized water, rain, wind, everything. But that second round is right on target, you know. So you did this in support of ground troops. Yeah, right? but we went out out of the camp too. We didn't just sit around in there all okay. day. But if but if a, if a, if the ground troops were calling for uh, support, artillery support, observer, tell yeah. me about that process. They they call that in. And what happens with in. your crew? What happened with your crew? When well, they then call the, in? the gunner gets relayed the coordinates. Okay. They put these little stakes out. And then uh, they go by that guide, you know, the red and white stripe. And then you fire, or and then sometimes you're firing interdiction, where you just fire in a certain area. You're blowing up all kinds of stuff. But we killed thousands of them in that artillery unit. I, I'm not saying it was great, but it was helping our GIs, you know. And uh, the Vietnamese give us uh, the Vietnamese cross of gallantry because one night we fired all night. They called it a donut, and uh, the VC had the Arvins Army of the Republic of Vietnam sent. They had them all surrounded, and we blew off over. We killed over 300 that day, according to the. They weren't faking stuff then. Later on, they say they were, you know. So the body count, was, in your opinion, yeah. the body count at that time was Yeah, right. and uh, I kind of, I didn't like the no sleep part. Uh, you'd be lucky to get three hours every 24. Some days you don't even get any. That's what makes you ornery and you're all getting ticked off, you know. Plus you're out in that, one time it was 132 in the shade at Dongtan. And out in the elephant grass, it was 144. Guys were passing out all over the place. But that's the way it is. You mentioned was. earlier that you that you actually went out into the field as well. The, with the guns, yeah. We had, so this, these are these in were the dry mobile, artillery, mobile artillery units. Yeah, plus they had tracks. Sometimes you'd sit up on the 50 caliber on this, the ammo carrier behind you. It's, it's a tank thing, tracks. And... Uh, 
Did you have to carry a weapon? I assume you did. Yeah, you had, especially when you're out of the camp there. M16? In, yeah, M16. M16. How do you, how'd you feel about the M16? Another real issue. Well, they had a lot of trouble with it, and uh, they couldn't figure out why it was jamming up. And in the middle of my tour, they took all the barrels, and I guess they chromed them. Like the VC had the AK with the chrome. You didn't have to worry about it. And they chromed the chamber. But mine said REM period. That means it was made at Remington. I didn't even know they were making, they were making whatever the government wanted, you know. Interesting, yeah. But I like the three prong thing. I had that zeroed in perfect. And so one time, I felt, we jumped off a chopper. Just we didn't do that usually, and um, it got in the muck. I lost my glasses, and then I always carried an extra pair because you jumped about ten feet into the muck there. So I had to leave it on full automatic, and I don't see that great, you know, to begin with. So I just had to spray and pray, like they called it, you know. But I always carried extra glasses, and my grandmother was sending me religious medals. I'd put them on. What the heck? She had uh, rosary beads, and I'd wear them. And a lot of times, firing them guns, you're running to the gun, and there's mortars and rockets hitting all around you. You know. So and, even though you were you were a, a artillery crew member, yeah. you were also you also saw combat on the ground. In, in, yeah, it was, it was, well, the LERPs, they're mostly observation. We'd go out and be quiet and look around, check stuff out. And then once in a while I'd set up an ambush. Not too many ambushes, you know, that's not good for you anyway. What did it feel like the first time you got shot at? Uh, let's see, first time I heard any noise at Bearcat, there was, we didn't know there was artillery right behind their hooch there. And that shook us up because they're firing right in, you're right in front of it, the gun maybe 20 feet, 30 feet. We didn't see them there. And then uh, that was only there two or three days. And one day this Vietnamese looked like a soldier. He had, um, but he was in there and he shouldn't have been in there. So I was thinking he might be a VC, right? So, and, uh, what happened was, he's right in our hooch, and uh, I said, hey, we better get him out of there, because he might be ready to kill a bunch of guys, because it was getting dark, so next thing we hear some M16 fire a little ways out. They said he was a VC and he had grenades on him. He was just right near us there, and they blasted him, you know. And then we went, from Bearcat to Dong Tim. I think we were on a truck. One time we were on a, they got us in a bus when we were first getting there with all caged windows so they couldn't. You'd see bodies along the side of the road like a dead rabbit you'd see here or a woodchuck. People getting run over, shot. You don't know who's killing them, maybe the VC. And what made people be the enemy was if they, they knew everybody around, and if you didn't do what they wanted, they start killing your family. So you had to be, 98% was VC. They made them do it. But 
that put us in a bad position and them too, you know, because they were, we were paying them to come on that camp, but that, then out, what was happening was the VC, when they come out of the camp, they'd give them most of the money back that they were making and use that on the black market. It was all screwed up. And every so many months, we'd change the military money. And the, the Vietnamese, they'd be crying. They'd have piles of money they saved up and it was worthless. That's how we kind of quelled that off, you know. Did you have any contact with the South Vietnamese Army? A little bit, but mostly they were, they weren't, there was, I figured one out of four was an enemy. So they knew what we were doing if we let them know. And then when it was time to fight, these were just regular army Vietnamese. They'd run off, they'd go and hide if they knew the enemies come. They knew everything. So you're saying one out of four of what's known as the Arvin. That's what I, we figured. Were probably. VCs. VCs. Just are talking to them because right. everybody was involved with the, with the VC or else they'd slit your throat or whatever, you know. We, just for an example, at Dong Tim, after the first couple of weeks I was there, they had a Vietnamese guy cutting your hair. So I came back a couple of weeks later, you got to trim it in the camp. Out there, you can, out, you can do it. You don't have to shave. That's good. <laughs> okay. But I said, where's that barber? He says, oh, they shot him. He's the first officer that sat in that chair. And I was... I would fall asleep, you know, you're tired, and they, they give you a back, like a they crack your neck, and I'll put you, you're sleepy. They could have slipped mine, but as I was only a spec four, I wasn't valuable then. That's an E, that's like a corporal kind of, you know. But the whoosh, unbelievable stuff going on, but they told him, to, must have told him, kill some officer, you know. And he waited till they got one in there. But he never made it out of there, and they blasted him. Wow. But that's how it goes, you know. But I was only a lowly guy, so they just shave you in for a quarter or whatever it was. So in March of 69, I believe it was, the, the Dong Tam ammo dump blew up. Yeah. Do you have that, a recollection of that? Huh? Do you have a recollection of that? Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. And that Stars and Stripes, it was over 300 killed. 55 missing, they, there was a bunker on the Mekong in the canal right there. That thing disappeared. The whole place had a mushroom thing, like a H-bomb, then a secondary one, and stuff was falling on us for I don't know how long. Body parts, shrapnel, everything coming down, raining. It's like raining on you, you know? That's enough to give you PTSD. They ran out of bat body bags. Then in the Stars and Stripes, that's the military magazine, like a newspaper, they said 30 killed, it was over 300. They, they minimized it. They must have done that all over the place. They ran out of body bags, that's something. In the what, hospital, everything got hit. What touched that off? They, they said a mortar, one little old mortar got into the ammo dump, and there's ammo, and they usually got sand, but it must have hit perfect and blew the whole place sky high. There wasn't even a Navy ship there that had damage from that, and the choppers, 
Navy could come up the river and then they'd bring stuff up to us like that. But they had guys on the Navy going up in those little boats, the PT the river Patrol Navy. boat. The, the River Patrol. Yeah, PBR. That's what John Kerry did. Yeah, they said he was glamorized though. I don't know. Tell me, Lou, what, what was your worst day in Vietnam? Good to pick one. One of the worst ones? During Tet. Tet 69 was probably just as bad as 68, but they didn't talk about it much, you know. They weren't getting into Saigon, but but one time we were on the gun, well, a couple times. We You got to get up off the ground this high in the night. If the moon's out, you're a silhouette. So we're up there, I'm firing the gun. The rest of the guys are in that armor, that track vehicle there. And me and the gunner. And all of a sudden, AK rounds are pinging off all around, you know. They're that close to shoot rifles at you. So I tried to duck down. I mean, I, it's a miracle I didn't get hit. So I ducked down the well of the gun where the barrel goes down. I almost got decapitated. I was down so far in there. And my butt was up in the air, but I didn't care about that. <laughs> and somehow I didn't get hit that time. The other time I was running, we were, I was, I went back to see those Lerp guys in the hooch there and um, they started walking mortars and that's when they, they move the tube up or down in a row they come. So after the one went by us, I started running back and then they threw a 122 rocket, the most powerful thing. And uh, like from, from me to six feet out, it blew off right there. You're dead within 30 yards. I saw all that red and yellow streaks go by my face and I, my hat got clipped, my jungle hat got a cut in it. Guy behind me goes down in the thigh and shrapnel, and I got un untouched. Something was watching out for me, you know. I was pretty lucky, and I said a lot of Hail Marys. So you came away without any wounds or injuries? Well, I got a piece of shrapnel, just a little piece here, okay. and a piece right here. And in my records, it says gunshot wound. But they, when we left, they burned everything. We left like they didn't. We only knew it about a day. They burned all the records, and everybody was getting the hell out because Nixon was pulling us out, which was nice. It saved me a month or so. So no, pur no Purple Heart. I, I told them in, when I went to Colorado my third year, because I couldn't get an early out. You know, mm -hmm. I, it's in my records, but I never got. And then now there you go. They, you got to fill out a ton of forms. You might have to have a witness and all this baloney. But you know the heck with it. I should have had a good conduct medal because I never had an Article 15. That's when you get fined for something. But the first sergeant in Colorado, that was the fifth division. He said, "We'll send it to you." Then it turned into another division. They were moved. Never got it. I had a trophy coming for softball from there and from Georgia fast pitch, and then I was slow pitching it. But I was battalion all-star in uh, Colorado. That's 42 battalions with a team. And me and my center, fire, center fielder made all-star. So you had some fun. 
Yeah, I got when you played sports you on the road you got paid T D Y temporary duty. Ten bucks more a day was big money in the nineteen seventy. And you got to eat in the officers' mess and you had to make teams like the track team they if I wasn't training for that, I only beat the one, the one. I had to beat six or seven guys that were trying to get on there. And the last one was that much difference at 120-something feet with the Olympic disc. But I was starting to use that weight machine first time. Cool. And uh, I played some sports here, you know, and there. Getting back to, to Vietnam, yeah. were, you, were you aware at the time of the use of Agent Orange? Well, yeah. They spray it on us sometimes. Directly on you? Yeah, if they were coming back to Donk Tam and they had some left, they'd just push it out there, you know. But they'd also gas, throw gas on. But you can't shoot back at a chopper. They'll blow you away. They used to play with us. And they were Vietnamese, too. They would monkey around with Have you had any issues since you left the, the service with Well, I got Agent Orange and uh, diabetes, neuropathy. There's a whole list of stuff, but that gave me certain money. But I'd rather not had the money, but have yeah. the health. How know? was the How was the service from the VA? Huh? Did you have to use the VA? Oh, when I first got out, they didn't. They didn't want to talk to you. I went to Syracuse, got a speeding ticket on the way. I wasn't even going that fast, and then they didn't pay me to go and come back because uh, I didn't have the paperwork. So you get there, all of us for my hearing from artillery. All day, the whole GI series, everything, check this, check that, you know, all that crap. And then the guy goes, you're only a couple decibels off. I said, hey, I went in, I didn't, it wasn't any decibel. They, they don't want to give you nothing back then, especially because there's so many guys and they don't, they're just trying to get them out of there. The VA in Syracuse was bad news. They didn't. Oh, how is it now? Is it better? The it's better, better. But there's still some stuff going, you know, I mean. So you left Vietnam in August of 1969. August of 14th. What was it like coming home, Lou? Well, I was, they made, I made sergeant from, the captain made us, some of us that had been there longer sergeant but that don't mean you're going to keep it because when i got to the state side the first sergeant kept saying chicone you're going to nco academy i said no thanks first sergeant this went on three or four times because i didn't want to you know that's like starting basic and you've been all through the mill already so he goes you're going or we're going to bust you to e4 and you'll be on KP for 30 days and this and that. Said, All right, I'm going, you know. I, I didn't want to lose that extra. It was another 60 bucks a month. That was a lot of money back then. Sure. I didn't want him to get that money back and the strike besides. So I went to a net. It was at Fort Riley, Kansas. And it, we were right across the street from Custer's house. They still had it there. You know, everything was there. And the standing joke was, on the, Custer said, don't do anything till I get back. And that's the way it looked. Everything but the horse tie-ups were there, you know. That was kind of, that was tough. And half the guys either 
didn't want to do it or couldn't do it or getting drinking wine and stuff. But I wanted to stay and get that done, and I did. I learned some stuff there, like speak speaking. For instance, you look at somebody, you're talking to a bunch of people, and uh, instead of pointing at somebody, you do this. That's more polite, you know, that's an army thing. And I learned, then when I sold diamonds on the canal for 21 years, I used that stuff and I dug the diamonds. I, I got the best spot there is and I can't even get up there anymore. <laughs> but anyways, I learned how to make the jewelry, and put, but I didn't do it like they're doing with wires now. I'd use the perfect stone with the symmetrics and cap it on a gold or silver chain. And then I got some good bucks, but it was quality. It wasn't the see, stuff you see in the stores and all that. Then I did that. But anyways, where were we back to Nam there? Well, let me let me ask you this. If you had to pick something that you would like the American people to remember about or learn Didn't from like. the war. No, what would you like the American people to remember about the war, learn from that war? Well, what would it be? We were fighting and doing what we were told, you know, fighting. We were doing good, but they kept knocking us, you know, mm -hmm. with the, that was the, the commies were getting, getting the kids in college to, it was, you know how it was. They were always anti-war, but I mean, I didn't hate them or nothing. They're doing what they're doing, you know, but it was a big conflict. Like now you got a lot of conflict with Trump and uh, all them other ones, you know, but... Uh, Do you think Vietnam was worth the fight? Didn't end the way we wanted it to. Well, we just pulled that? out is all it was. And set by 1970, that's 70 was over. 71. They just left some guys there. But we pulled out. But it was all screwed up. Kennedy was, what we understood, was trying to get us all out of there back in, and then they shot, somebody got them, you know. The CIA was running opium and all that stuff out of there. They were in charge of that somehow. They were making money. Plus, Johnson didn't like Kennedy. The mafia didn't like all kind. Of, you know, they're never gonna. I guess in 2070 they're gonna tell you the real story. We're not gonna hear it. I don't think unless we can hang around. Or, but that's that was all corruption too. You know. How do you think? I don't care if he went out with Marilyn Monroe. What the hell? More power to him. How did your Vietnam experience change you as a person? Well. I kept telling myself I was all right, but I knew I wasn't all right. Like something would have happened. Yeah. I did some beer drinking for a few years there, you know, but I it didn't it didn't do nothing for me almost, you know. But when I first got back and I was up to Chickering's on Main Street, there's all these people having a good time, and I was just coming out of that war zone. But they could care less. I didn't say much to them. But everybody was having a good time, but I wasn't. I still had a lot of nightmares, you know. I still get them. So the welcome, the welcome home didn't Well, my, your friends, close friends and relatives cared about you. 
that was about it. Okay. Yeah. So. So you you had some issues with PTSD then. Yeah, I was shot at a lot of times, and I should have been dead. I stopped counting how many. One time I was in a hooch, and they moved me out of that hooch to the next one. A mortar came through the roof through and blew up on the bed I was would have been sleeping on. A lot of things like that was were going on, you know. You're a very lucky guy. Yeah, and I did a lot of Hail Marys, too. I bet you did. I bet you did. And uh, what we do when we were going out of the camp, they would, uh, you'd get two beers. So you'd chug them down and you're, you're pretty well loaded and 120 degrees. And you'd sit on that track vehicle or whatever you're on with your M16 to the, the jungle was right up to the road, you know. So when they, what they would do is get up in a tree and just use a whole magazine out of an AK on one vehicle. So you had to, you as soon as you hear fire, you just, pull back on the trigger, automatic, because you don't know where them guys are and you want to get to the hell through through there, you know. So, but the two beers helped steady you, kind of, yeah. Is there any issue or question that I didn't bring up that you'd like to address, Lou, while we wrap this up? Yeah. I was supposed to get other medals, but they gave it by rank they were doing. My what sergeant, do you, what do you mean by what? That? Like the time during Tet, me and the gunner ran to the gun and the sergeant was in the bunker. He was supposed to be, we're standing there, shells are coming all around and these guys weren't over with. Maybe somebody told them not to come. But then when he got the bronze star, that ticked me off because he was had nothing to do with it. And we get the army commendation with a V. I got four of them things, but they they went by rank kind of. But we were getting the action, bad stuff, and then the officers and all the rest of them get all the big medals for doing nothing. That's that's the way it was. Well, that bothered you, didn't it? Kind of. I mean, I was supposed to get a silver one time. Me and Smitty were on the berm during Tet. That's like the dirt's piled up. And then the barbed wires out there. Because there was VC coming right in. And we were supposed to have eight guys there. It was just me and Smitty shooting away. The next day there was seven or eight of them laying out there. And the cap, the lieutenant says, here, sign this. I said, what's that? He goes, saying I was with you. I says, you weren't with me. I, then I didn't get nothing out of it. Me and Smitty was the ones that did all the shooting. And that captain want to weasel in on it. I probably should have. I'd have silver is a big silver is a big time silver star. Absolutely. The captain got one when he wasn't doing much either. They just kind of give them to the big guys there. The the colonels from the in choppers were getting all kinds of medals and we were doing all the stuff. And they didn't even touch down. You know, most of them. That Hackworth was in our division. You ever heard of him? Hackworth. No, I haven't. He could have had the Medal of Honor in Korea, but he was always turn, telling about generals that were goofing up, you know, and they didn't, the officers didn't like him, so he only got the Distinguished Service thing. And he wrote books. He was in our division at one time. The worst outfit was the 39th, I think, Infantry, and it, he turned it into the best outfit because he, 
he wasn't afraid to touch down and go out with the troops, you know. Most of the big guys just go up in a chopper and looking around. But anyways. You mentioned firing at those guys who were charging you. What's it like when you're when you're? Oh, you're just doing your thing, you know. But you're you're. If you you're see sh shooting it, with the you see it, the you muzzle like? blast, you shoot. But they were shooting at us too. Did you, were you able to see them? Mostly, it's pitch dark, but you could see the flash of their rifles, and they could see ours. And you're shooting back and moving around. You know, you don't want to stay right in one spot and roll over this way or whatever. Okay. But that was something else. You know, it was all. The army did their own thing they wanted to do, kind of, you know. Well, Lou, I appreciate you coming in to, to sit with me for the interview. It's been really interesting, and okay. once again, I, I want to thank you for your service. Okay, and, nobody uh, did in the old days. Well, I'm know. thanking you now. We're on the tail home. end of these other wars, kind of get thrown in there. Yeah. Yeah. But, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good to see you. Okay. That's another, that's, that's another episode of Through My Eyes. Thank you very much for watching. Hope to see you next time.